Well, welcome back to the Someone to Tell To podcast. It's always such a joy to have you with us, and we really mean that. Uh, Happy New Year to all of you. It's 2021, and we'd like to think that this year is going to be better than last year. Uh, We know it's been a hard year for so many of us, and and we just, um, we know and trust that uh, this just may be our philosophy of life, that the good will come out of this. And uh, we trust that 2021 will uh, bring bring unexpected gifts and surprises uh, and hopefully utilize 2021's brokenness and pain and suffering and, and find some some ways through it and around it. Our guest today, she's a, we believe, a great one to start out this new year with. She's a friend of ours. She lives in the Netherlands. We've had the privilege of meeting her in person twice and several times through Zoom. And we just immediately connected with her and love her spirit, her empathy, her compassion, and her dedication to the importance and the vitalness of listening. Uh, she's Kareen Jansen. And uh, we really hope you'll you'll enjoy this this conversation today. She she talks about being changed uh, when we listen to someone, changed by listening to someone, and changed by being listened to. And we think that 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 is a tremendous gift. And it's you know changed for the better, lighter. We just feel uh, maybe more grateful. We with burdens that are lifted. Uh, we feel as if we've been heard and that's really what our souls need we talk about that so we really truly hope that this will be a meaningful conversation for you her name is kareen jansen of breda north brabrant netherlands she specializes in opening a conversation with people with a broad non-directive invitation to speak during the last 11 years she has trained others in listening to both content and form to be aware of genre, diction, metaphor, time and space, tone and mood, to follow complicated stories as they are being told. In particular, she practices in lectures about listening and health humanities and care, pain, trauma, and grieving. This title uh, in her position as the chief listening officer in the medical community. And we've since implemented that title with a couple of our team members. And uh, currently one of our team members holds that that position and that title. And we just have always resonated with it. It just, uh, it's a unique role within someone to tell to his organization. And uh, we we know that uh, it's it's been a special position for Kareen as well. So again, Welcome back and uh, enjoy this episode. Well, Kareen, it's so good to have you on the Someone to Tell To podcast. And for all of our listeners, we must admit off camera before we press record today, we wanted to make sure that we had her name correctly because uh, there is a little bit of a mispronunciation, I think at times here uh, in the United States based on her name and her tradition and and the culture that she comes from. So we did clarify that and hopefully I pronounced it correctly. You do. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Well, it is good to have you with us today. It's such a pleasure to be with you and um, we finally made it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And, and we also want to say that that uh, for her, it's much later in the evening. 
and it's about bedtime. And uh, so we, we uh, really appreciate her taking you taking the time uh, to, to do this, um, you know, at this time of the day for you. So thank you. Thank very you for having me. So it's, it's, it's a great pleasure to talk with friends. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. Well, one of the things that we've been doing in a lot of our conversations this year with folks from around the world in 2020 is to simply ask, what's been one especially challenging thing that you've had to face during the pandemic? And what's one silver lining that has helped you remain positive and hopeful? It could be anything, anything serious, something that has made you laugh, or something that has calmed your anxieties. Well, it, it, it went really fast, didn't it? Um, my life was pretty good. Uh, we made travel plans and I made plans for work and we were doing things and um, also coming up with a lot of ideas of what to do next. And then, yeah, well, here we are. And I have to admit, it brings out a message uh, from Seneca to me. This man was living in exile with illness and financial setbacks, uh, setbacks uh, I think 2000 years ago. And he wrote that we should always be vigilant and especially in good times because vigilance is the first step towards preparation. And so he wrote, so whatever happens, it never comes as a shock. Well, this was a shock. And um, it, 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 it was an unprecedented reminder of the truth that um, what he wrote 2000 years ago. And I think we ignore too much for too long. And I think that's human nature. Um, life is a fickle, transformations happen. Change is the only constant. But this year, um, especially in my work, um, it was tough because we lost a lot of people and people were really, truly ill. Um, and the thing was that it appears that, that no one is so rich or so healthy or so strong or smart that they can avoid this pandemic. This, this, this virus does not distinguish, uh, distinguish between people. And well, so it was a tough year, but um, the world teaches us something every day. And um, your question about, well, what I call silver, silver lining, I think that's really easy to answer for me because I worked a lot and those were painful moments. And these... Um, these past months, I, I will not forget. I don't think anyone will forget. But I went outside a lot during lunch and after working day, I went to nature. I, I walked a lot. I, I, took, I took those um, wandering walks that Seneca talked about. And um, I, I did walking, I was listening to nature and I was looking to animals. Um, so for me, walking in nature, silence was key um, and, and we managed and that, that was my hope. Nature is my hope, but, but I think we fight with nature and I think nature will always win. So it will be still challenging. 
we uh, we share that with you. We love to be out in nature as well. And whenever we have something vital, significant, or even hard to talk about, we we when we're together, we we will tend to walk. We'll go find some woods, uh, a trail, a park, a path somewhere where we can be outside with with we hope sunshine and nice skies and and trees and flowers and and even when those things trees and flowers aren't blooming certainly still to be outside even when the sky's gray can be good too and we love that and that that is a place where we we constantly find answers yeah and we find our way forward when we're not sure (laughs) how to go forward uh, or what to do what to say how to respond to something and so we, we probably resonate with that very strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Nature is a great gift. Karina. It, maybe it's the greatest gift of earth. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to add uh, to Seneca and another quote that we've used, we used it in our second book mm-hmm. and here's something that it's a he, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So he said, to whom can any man or woman say, here I am. Behold me in my nakedness, my wounds, my secret grief, my despair, my betrayal, my pain, my tongue, which cannot express my sorrow, my terror, my abandonment. Listen to me for a day, an hour, a moment, lest I expire in my terrible wilderness, my lonely silence. Oh God, is there no one who listens? Is there no one to listen? You ask? Ah, yes. There is one who listens, who will always listen. Hasten to him, my friend. He waits on the hill for you, for you alone. Yeah, that's Seneca. Yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We love that. We love that passage. Yeah. So you're an expert in health humanities. We'd love for you to talk with us about what the health humanities are and how they are used in listening and understanding others and their experiences. Well, first of all, I will never call myself an expert of anything. Um, I have knowledge, but th- that doesn't make me an expert. I'm, I'm trying to do my best. And I will never say this is true because I'm an expert. Um, I'm always questioning my perspective, but for me, health humanities is is, um, uh, an interdisciplinary field of study that draws on aspects of the arts and the uh, the humanities and um, in its approach to to healthcare and health and and, and well-being. And um, for me, it involves the application of visual arts, but also music, uh, literature, history, philosophy, um, and in healthcare, y- you have to practice. We call that the narrative practice, and you need that um, for critical and skilled attention to people's narrative. And 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 and, and using these these arts and humanities encourage create creativity and reflection. So. I use health humanities to offer people a, well, a possible feeling of being heard and seen. But, but 
If you allow me, um, I, 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 I would like to share some perspective um, on care and illness, if you don't mind. Um, because I believe that a somatic illness um, affects not only the body, but also the mind. And um, it disrupts a person's sense of, of being a unified self. And I, I can't describe it more beautiful than Arthur Frank did in, in, in the, the Wounded Storyteller, the Wounded Storyteller. Um, because he wrote that a serious illness opens um, a rupture in the self. So for me, that means that there is a before illness self and an after illness self. And it's really important to understand that. And I think um, that health humanities helps us to understand. Because what I noticed by, by, by working in healthcare is that medicine and, and science work through um, generalities, but lives, our lives are lived as singularities. So medicine, uh, statistical evidence is based on generals, but it cannot be applied to the individual and not to the individual life context. Um, so you have to see the human being and as human beings, we never know exactly how the suffering of another feels, you know? Um, and I will quote um, a man, um, another man, uh, Emmanuel Levinas. He was uh, a Jewish philosopher. And, and I think he is important in the health humanities because he said, well, in, in terms of, of his thought, that the other person's subjective perspective is never as knowable as one own is. So the other always lies behind the comprehension of the self. And I think that health humanities can build bridges between these differences, but also in these divisions. In these divisions. There is really, um, a difference between medicine and health humanities. Do you find that an increasing number of medical practitioners are learning that, are embracing that? Is, are, is it a struggle? Uh, at university, they get to know the medical treatments and uh, blood tests and analyzes. Um, but we all are so unique in our context and so unique. We all have the same organs, you know, um, but our life is so different. And I think it's changing um, the education of, 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 of medical students. It's changing, but it's changing slowly because it's asking a different part of you as a physician, of you as a care professional, than only about knowing the body, because there is no body in front of you, but a human being in front of you. Um, so 
it is a struggle, still it is. But I think people are open and willing to have a better understanding about the human. And, and that's, that's you, you, you know, the, the word human-centered care is from the 1960s. We already talked about human-centered care in humanism in, in, in the 60s. But we are making progress. <laughs> we are making progress, but it's slowly. Slow. I, um, my family and I are part of a, a medical school's humanities project mm -hmm. uh, called the Patient as Teachers Project. Mm -hmm. And where I live in Hershey, Pennsylvania, there is a medical school uh, from the Pennsylvania State University. And so they're, they're, you know, every year new students come. And every year they have the first year students take this humanities course to understand that a person, in the person in front of you is a person, is a human being, not just a body, not just organs, not, a, not just a disease or a diagnosis, they are a human being. And they pair medical students, usually in pairs, mm -hmm. uh, with a, a, a patient mm -hmm. who has a chronic condition, whatever it may be, and they, for a whole school year, interact with that, that person and visit them in their homes or, visit, or go to doctor's appointments with them, you know, see what they do every day and, and get to know their families. Mm -hmm. Our family's been doing this for at least eight years now because we have a son, I, one of my sons has um, severe to profound intellectual disabilities mm -hmm. as well as autism. Mm -hmm. So he needs 24 hour care and attention. He can't talk, he doesn't talk. He is not toilet trained. He needs help to do everything, to, to dress himself, to eat, to uh, you know, just, just go through life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we agreed to do this, be part of this project for our son because we embraced that concept that of seeing a person not as a disease, not as a statistic, but as a human being and understanding. And it's been one of the most fulfilling um, things that we have done as a family. And one way we as, a, as parents can have our son's disabilities be redeemed in some way, in some large way through the larger, larger whole mm. for greater good. And so we're very proud to do that. So again, resonate very strongly with what you're saying mm. and that need. And I'm proud to be living in a community where there is a medical school that believes that and is, is teaching that right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and we, it was a, it perhaps, I think I understand it was the first medical school in the United States to incorporate this into their teaching. So I also proud of that. It's a large step. It's, it's, it's a great step. I know that um, the Radboud University in Nijmegen in the Netherlands is doing the same. And I think they started four or five years ago. Um, and it's a big step, not only for the students, but also for the families and for the people who are suffering. It, yeah. it, it's really changing our perspective on, on care, 
but it's also changing our perspective on a human being and the vulnerability of a human being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. This might be a good time to ask you about your blog that you've written, which both of us have read and resonated with. And I think it would be helpful for our listeners to learn more about it called the stratification of the individual. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that blog for us? Yeah, I will. Well, several years ago, I think it was 2013 to 2014, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Um, and suddenly I was a patient. Um, and I had difficulties with that. Um, so I started to read philosophy as I always do when I have questions. And um, I think that in healthcare, we, we, we call people uh, who are ill patients. But um, when you're looking at the word patient, it means suffering, but also patience and persistence. Um, and suffering is, is well, well I, I just mentioned that there is a, a before being ill and an after uh, being ill, the suffering can be physical and mental, uh, mentally. Uh, so th there, is, um, there is a connection. And um, I think that um, a patient is someone um, who gets uh, medical or, or nursing assistance or paramedical um, uh, help. But I had to admit that I was not feeling a patient all the time. So a doctor says, well, I will see a patient. But when I'm visiting my doctor, I don't feel as a patient um, most of the time. Um, and I noticed that our whole healthcare system is designed on the definition that you are requesting for help. Um, and, and, and I think that everyone is um, requesting for help some, someday, sometimes, and even, well, maybe all the days of your life in some way. Um, but someone can suffer um, for no medical reason and, and, and requesting for help. Is that someone a patient or not? Um, or is he only a patient if he or she asks for help or an intervention? Um, is someone suffering from life uh, a patient or is that not necessary? So I was really searching for who am I now with this diagnosis of an autoimmune disease? And um, well, when you look to, to the history, um, I, I just mentioned it because the term patient implies expectations in, in my opinion, but also assumptions and, um, and, and some way of communication. Um, but if I am asking for help, but not suffering from a disease, am I a patient? I don't know. So um, I have to admit that I'm not suffering 
the whole time. I have pain um, every day, but I'm no longer suffering from it because it's part of me. So I don't call myself a patient. And I know a lot of people, well, for example, a diabetes patient. Um, well, a person with diabetes is, is, is getting treatment. Um, but the question is, does he feel or she feel a patient or, well, I heard most of the time they say, I have diabetes. That is something else than I am a patient. So um, I think it's important that we think about using words. And when we um, only put um, the word patient on a person who is suffering of an illness or a disability, um, we have an issue. And um, again, Emmanuel Levinas states, who you are is partly determined by the other. And the other, when the other is calling you a patient, it's, it's reduced the identity of you mm -hmm. because you put a label on another person. And so I understand, I truly understand why we do this but I also regret it. Um, and I understand it because it helps us to understand the world around us. Um, but by putting a label on someone, and, and I choose the word patient, but it can also be you are a woman or you are a prisoner or you are, um, well, well, just mention something. You, you reduce someone to that label and... Um, I think when you do that, you ignore the stratification of an individual and then you ignore the narrative of that individual. And I think listening and, under, and trying to understand the, the stratification of that other person will help the other person to heal, to respect uh, themselves and to have a better understanding. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a very difficult discussion because our systems like to put a label on people in, in every possible way. Um, and, well, I don't like it. There's so many things about what you just said that resonate and connect with us and our work. It's someone to tell to, but also just our philosophy of life where... I, I forgive me if I misunderstood this, but as I was reading the blog, you made the point that a patient is only signified once somebody asks for help. And we probably could make the argument that that eliminates an awful lot of people. And there are a lot of people, as Seneca would say, are dealing with all kinds of thing, hidden things, things that are not spoken of, but need to be. So he mentions your nakedness, your wounds, your secret grief, your despair, your pain, on and on about all these hidden things that most people would never know, but are just as, so I think to your point, we're all suffering and, and we're trying to debunk because that leads, a lot, leads to a lot of stigma. Yeah. Uh, and, and then people don't receive the kind of care and support that they need because they're afraid to talk about those things. Yeah, that's right. And um, although I understand the system, 
um, when, when I am really in pain, Tom, I call myself a patient because then the suffering is so big and I ask for help of a physician. And when my physician talks to me, he's talking to me as a human being, but he's seeing me as a patient at that moment. Um, but when I'm not suffering and I'm visiting him uh, and we have a conversation about quality of life and about um, how to, to deal with stuff in life, I'm not a patient, I'm just Corinne. Um, and I wanted to be treated like that and, and I want to communicate in that way. And um, I have to admit, I asked my, uh, my physician, I will call you a doctor when, I'm, when I am uh, suffering and when I'm here as a patient and otherwise I will call you by your name. Mm, love that. Kareen, uh, you've said that listening is being able to be changed by the other person. Could you share a story of a time when through listening you were changed by another person? Well, I, I think... Um, that, that, that my narrative is changing after every encounter. But, um, but let me share the story of what I call the closet. Um, I would visit a lady with dementia and she is living in a nursing home. Um, because of the dementia and because of the kind of dementia she had, she was no longer able to speak. And I enter her room and I was sitting in a chair and she was sitting on her bed. And I really tried to connect with her by touching her hand, looking at her eyes. But I failed. Uh, I couldn't connect with her. And um, intuitively, I choose to sit next to her on her bed. I was sitting next to her and I was staring in the same direction as she was. And I saw a closet, a dark brown closet. And I looked around in her room and I found a book of art. So I opened the book and it showed, of course, a lot of colors. Uh, so I asked her, what is your favorite color? And she kept pointing at something white, but I had no idea if that was coincidence or did she even understand what I was asking her? Well, but I took the gamble. <laughs> so I took her hand and I walked with her to the dark brown closet. And she rubbed it in a way that I only know from painters. They do it in, in, in a special way. And I brought her back to her bed and went to search for the technical man in the house. And I asked him, do you have sandpaper? And he said, yes, ma'am, I have. And I said, well, can you give me some sandpaper? Um, and I went back to her with that little piece of sandpaper. And she took it from me. And she walked back to the closet and I walked together with her. And she started sending a part of the closet in a very thoughtful way. 
And I picked up the book and I asked, what color should the closet be? And again, she pointed white. Well, to keep the story short, two weeks later, I received a photo of the white closet. She painted the closet white with a volunteer. And I tell this story because she was not able to speak. And therefore, I need to listen in a totally different way. Mm. And this meeting, this, this, this real encounter moved me enormously. Um, and when I got the photo, I, I cried. And I thought, okay, so this is the power of listening. Listening is, is, is looking for connection even when there are no words, um, she changed my perspective on listening tremendously. Michael, it reminds me of so many stories you've shared through the years of Matthew. And I think of one in particular I've always connected with is his need to be affirmed and, mm -hmm. and how he will make sure that somebody is aware of, of, of of something that's occurred and, and, and specifically when he's gotten a haircut and he'll come home and he'll lean forward for somebody to rub his head or just to acknowledge the fact that he's gotten a haircut. Yeah. He does it and he'll do it for weeks afterwards. <laughs> it's, he'll, he'll rub his head and he'll smile, you know, and I, I try to make a big deal about it. Did you get a haircut? You know, and re really speak very animatedly and, and smile and laugh and he laughs too. And he really loves that. Even though he can't talk, but it's very obvious that he needs to, he knows that that, that, that creates a connection with us. And, and when I get a haircut, I do the same. I, I will lean down to him and said, I got a haircut and he'll rub my hair and <laughs> as well. And, and it's, it's a sense, you know, as just the same way I rub his when he indicates that he got one too. Yeah. It's, it's a touching moment. Yeah. It is. It is touching the base of, of, of being human. You've mentioned, we, we've talked extensively about your work in the medical community, and you've referenced that you believe do doctors, nurses, and other professionals who can listen to people's stories and show genuine curiosity about them become more effective healers mm -hmm. and can produce better medical outcomes also when it comes to pain. Could you talk a bit about some of those outcomes? Well, within, I think within a clinical encounter these days, um, the therapeutic value for the patient of being listened, being listened to is, is widely recognized. I, I think, yes, we arrived at that point. Um, but we also have to admit that what patients say and what doctors hear are still two different things. So people feel the urgency to make their case, but doctors need to multitask while they listen to their patients and, and often miss key elements of, of, of the narrative. And um, 
I think, and and I spoke with 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 lots of physicians that the wider the first question posed to a patient, the better the conversation will be. And um, I think that um, the more the nurse or physician can learn about the person and, and um, seeing the human being, um, the better they can work together because they need each other in healthcare. The physician and the nurse knows everything about the body and the treatments, but this person has so much knowledge about his own body or her own body. So we, we need to work, let them work together. So when you, as, as a physician or nurse say, well, I will be, or I am your doctor, so I need to know you. And please tell me what I should know about your life, about your body and about your health. You will get a total different conversation. And, and then you need to listen because we, we know that, that um, physicians want to interrupt the patients and, and they do it. Um, I think momently, uh, I think nowadays it's on 11 seconds. And, and, and that is really no good. But opening the question and opening the conversation with this sentence, I will be your doctor. So I need to know you, creates an encounter. Um, and therefore, um, they will have a better understanding together. Um, and having a better understanding will create a better medical outcome. Such a good point, because we in our work talk about our listening being less transactional and more relational, mm-hmm. because the best listening, we would argue, is, is relational. It's not transactional. It's not just one side doing all of the listening, but there is some, we would call it mutual vulnerability and openness occurring. And so I think your point's a valid one that that needs to occur in the medical community just as, as much as it does in our own homes. Yeah, yeah, and 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 if you allow me, this is a connection with with um, uh, the, the the health humanities or, or or narrative medicine. This is the art of close reading, um, because when you are using the arts, you know how to listen to content. You know how to listen to form, to time, to space, to mood, and to tone to listen to the complicated stories as the person will share with you. And and this is where science and art come together. You you write a lot, you blog a lot, and we've enjoyed reading what you have written. And you've written several blogs about pain. Yeah. Um, One is entitled, um, Pain is What the Person Says It Is. And we want to quote you, what you said in there, what you wrote in there. You wrote that pain is probably one of the most universal human experiences. But that's also exactly the problem. You may be able to imagine the pain of a loved one, but you have absolutely no way of knowing exactly how that person feels. Could you say more about that? Yeah. 
Um, we are entirely alone in our pain. And it's just impossible to know whether the sensations you feel are the same as that of anyone else. And we are trying to find the right words to describe pain. But I have to say, we come up empty. And the, the painting of, of Edvard Munch painting, the, the scream, mm. it's, it's a great example of this. We want to scream as loudly as we could, but we are, we are unable to make a sound. Um, we hesitate. We are unsure how to begin, how to describe but feels so immediate and entangable at the same time. And no one else could ever understand. So both parties become frustrated because the physician don't have enough time to wait for you to find the words. And, and that's because we are incredibly ill-equipped to describe our pain in words but our language just can't do it that well so we end up with with reaching for 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 metaphors to help us out i i, I recently I, I spoke to to a man and i i showed him the painting of frida kahlo the wounded deer and 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 that's that's a uh, um a horrible painting it's, it's beautiful but it's, it's horrible it's, it's really about pain but talking about the painting gave him time but also perspective and meaning to his own pain so art affords us the, the, the luxury of seeing from another perspective and and also um, in a less hectic time frame of course but it enables us to see and then reflect. And that is not the issue when we are visiting our doctor. And it's also not the issue when we are saying to our loved ones, I'm, I'm in pain. So I would like that physicians ask another question, not how much pain, when did the pain start, but what would you like to tell me that no one has asked you about your pain before? Mm -hmm. Or if you wake up without pain, what would you do? What are your goals for managing your pain? If we ask questions like this, we have another conversation. And I think that these questions will help us to set up what I call a human-centered conversation. And especially in pain, we need a human-centered conversation. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Pensy. We are volunteers at Wonders Found Thrift Shop and proud sponsors of the Someone to Tell It To podcasts. Wonders Found is a totally volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. 
We also support local missions and people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, mountcalvaryumc.org backslash wonders found or stop in to see what wonders you will find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard. God bless. Talking about human-centered conversations, there was a post that you made on, on your website about a conversation between Anderson Cooper, a correspondent on CNN, and Stephen Colbert, the comedian and American late-night show host, in which they talk about the deaths of their parents and their brothers. Stephen's father and two of his brothers died in a plane crash, and Anderson's father died when he was 10. And his older brother died a few years later through suicide. During the conversation, Anderson Cooper confessed because of those painful deaths, I'm a different person than I feel like I was meant to be. That statement touched you. It touched us. Would you like to tell us why and what it means to you? Yeah. It touched me deeply. It still touched me deeply. Mm. He, he was very convinced about this and it seems to hurt him. And I was wondering how the pain of grief changed him and who he hoped to become before losing his dear ones. What were the feelings related to this sentence? What, what is his narrative? And I was wondering are we not all other persons than we hope to become because we are living our lives, because we are suffering, because we're in pain, because we, we are grieving? Um, uh, yeah, it touched me deeply. Again, uh, I, I became an orphan at the age of 29. And I lost my, my father when I was 16 and I lost my mother when I was 29. Um, and after that, I felt my life would change in a way I couldn't imagine. A and it did. Um, and when I looked to this, this touching video, I ask myself the same question and I can't answer it because I don't know who I was meant to be. I only know who I tried to be right now at this time, in this context, in this life. But um, it was such a beautiful touching conversation about life and loss it's um it's, yeah 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 we were touched by it too and um found it to to be really powerful and uh especially especially because it was a conversation between two men yeah and men don't always 
talk about those things as easily and openly. That's right. And, and so, and, and that's something that, that, that we, Tom and I try to do, certainly with each other, but try to model uh, to be more open, more vulnerable and um, to share more of those kinds of things and feelings that, that, that we have. And, and so I think that's why it was also powerful for us because it was men who were doing that when mm-hmm. yeah. we don't always, we don't always as men want to do that. So. No. And, and his, his, his sentence, I think it's, it's really, really interesting sentence it's a really interesting sense he spoke because it made you think about a lot of things mm-hmm. yeah for many of us um life is a search for meaning where do you believe because we know you've you've written some things or you know you've made some statements about this but where do you believe we get the meaning in life from <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I think the meaning of life is to live a meaningful life. Um, yeah. And I think um, that will be different for every person. Um, and, and, I, I need to quote Emmanuel Levinas again because he he said, and, and maybe I'm paraphrasing, but he said it's it's not you who gives the world a place, but it's the other who appeals who appeals to you, appeals and gives you a place. And I think in a meaningful life. Um, you listen to the appeal of others without forgetting to take care of yourself. Because if we forget to take care of ourselves, we are not able to take care of others. But I, I, I truly believe that the other um, gives us um, a meaningful life. Yeah. I, it's, it's, this is a really difficult question, but yeah, immediately I think about Levinas and, and this, this, this sentence of him. Yeah. It's the other, I think. Yeah. I think for us, it's, it's, uh, to a point you made in actually your Ted talk in 2015, you shared a story about a patient and you who shared a touching story about her lying in the hospital being treated for cancer. And one of her doctors tried to suggest a treatment, a protocol for her. And she refused it declaring, I am a human being. I don't want to fit to a protocol. And I think we're all about this work of trying to allow people the freedom to be human. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and this, this lady, she, she was, she was a beautiful lady, but she was screaming, you know, she was in pain. She was screaming. Um, please see me, please hear me. Um, and I, 
I was so proud of her that that she was able to scream. Well, she didn't scream, but but you, you know, she she was really asking to see her as a human being, and um, and and during the conversation, she looked at her husband um, who died, and. Um, after our conversation, she, she died too, uh, a few months later. But she died peacefully and without chemo. And she didn't want chemo. Um, but I thought her strength when she said, please see me, please hear me. Yeah. We, we just have one more question to ask you and perhaps it's a big question but uh, while we were talking before we started to record this conversation you said that you have a message for the world <laughs> you may regret saying that because we're going to ask you now what is that message <laughs> what is the message that you want the world to know to hear um I want to ask people to choose more often to be fully present with another individual and to be curious because we need it so much. We all need it. To be, to be understand is a basic need. But I think we don't choose enough to be present with another individual. And um, when we listen to Emmanuel Levinas, but also when we listen to Seneca or Marcus Aurelius, um, they show the importance of connection, the importance of an encounter, the importance of building bridges. Um, and, and, and listening has it all, but, but we need to choose for it. If we don't choose for it, it's difficult because our ego is the enemy. We began today's conversation quoting Seneca, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna reread this quote because we all need to hear it multiple times throughout our lives. So Seneca wrote, I guess, 2000 years ago, whom can any man or woman say, here I am, behold me in my nakedness, my wounds, my secret grief, my despair, my betrayal, my pain, my tongue, which cannot express my sorrow, my terror, my abandonment. Listen to me for a day, an hour, a moment, lest I expire in my terrible wilderness, my lonely silence. Oh God, is there no one to listen? Is there no one to listen, you ask? Ah, yes, there is one who listens, who will always listen. Hasten to him, my friend. He waits on the hill for you, for you alone. So it's with those words, we thank you, Kareen, for being with us today. Thank you for being our friend. And uh, we just look forward to so many more conversations with you just like this one. Thank you so much for listening to 
to my stories, to my perspective, um, to my work, and to my message to the world. <laughs> <laughs> it is a beautiful message, one that we love a lot, and that's why we wanted to be able to talk with you and to share our conversation with the world. So thank world you for your friendship, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, again, we hoped that you enjoyed this conversation. And following the interview that we did with uh, Corrine, she um, sent a message to me because we had a brief mention um, about my son, Matthew, who lives with uh, severe intellectual disabilities and autism. And, and Tom encouraged me during that interview with Corrine, as you as you heard, to to uh, tell a little story about Matthew and and what life is like with him. But Corrine didn't know about about him and about um, our family's experiences uh, with a child with disabilities. And she messaged me following the, the the our conversation and asked, would I be willing to to talk with her again? in a non-recorded way, but just talk about what it's been like to, to live with Matthew. And I said, yeah, and, and we arranged to do that. And we had that conversation. It lasted about an hour and a half. And, and I was so moved by Corrine's sense of empathy and the, and the questions that she asked, some really insightful, incisive questions. Some, some of which I don't know that I've ever been asked before. And it, it really showed, in my mind, her absolute skill um, at asking questions that get to very deep matters. And I can only imagine, we can only imagine how good she is at what she does in the hospital where she works and uh, you know, with other people with you know, whom she speaks and, and uh, provides, you know, just provides information and, and, and insights about listening. So I just want to thank her personally for that, for that conversation and how much it meant to me. And um, I blogged about it and, and you can find it on, you know, on the Someone to Tell It To website and on Facebook page and, and uh, LinkedIn and um, just really, really proud of, of being able to, to just be in conversation with her about that. Well, thanks again for tuning in today. We again wish you a very meaningful 2021 with much promise and hope. And uh, there are so many takeaways from today's conversation with Corrine. And we'll be sure to, in the link, uh, we had referenced in the interview, a conversation with uh, a, a few public figures here in the United States. And we'll be sure to share that conversation uh, as well. So again, we just really appreciate you tuning in and, and uh, please take a moment if you can and subscribe to the Someone to Tell To podcast. Like us on Facebook or Twitter, find us on Instagram and, and continue to learn a, bit, a little bit more about our work. So thanks so much. Until we listen again.